Welcome to Talking Scripture. Uh, we are so grateful to be here today with you talking about Philippians and Colossians. And before we do, we just want to let you know that we're out there on multiple podcast apps now. We're on Apple Podcasts as well as Stitcher and Spotify. And you can listen to us as well on YouTube. And we want to just thank the people that have helped us to make this happen. Uh, first and foremost, we want to thank Jeff Harmon for his help getting this podcast up and running. Jeff, we couldn't do it without you. Your technical expertise is just vital. Also, uh, Rachel Hood has done a lot for us. She's made our logo. We're grateful to her. And thank you, Rachel, for your help in making this happen. So the book of Philippians. The overall message is going to be one of joy. Why is Paul so happy? Because basically he's in jail. So we're going to talk about this today. We're also going to talk a little bit about the technical aspects of the, of the letter to the Philippians. And just a note to the listeners, we will be talking a little bit about uh, some Greek words. And the reason we are going to be talking about these Greek words is because the New Testament was not written in English. It was written in Greek originally. And we don't have any original uh, actual documents of the text. Everything in the uh, New Testament, we have copies of copies. We don't have any of the originals, but we know that the originals were written in Greek. And so we'll talk about that and why it matters and why there's things happening in the text that we lose in translation. And some of this relates to the temple. Uh, Bryce is going to be talking about the overarching idea in the book of Philippians and how it applies in our life. If you've ever had some things in your life not work out according to plan and you see the Lord working through uh, these events, Bryce will make some great application when it comes to this. He's a master at this. And so we look forward to that. And also in the book of Colossians, we'll talk about a heresy that Paul is addressing and hopefully unpack some of this. We'll do a little bit of an introduction to Gnosticism and, and perhaps how this applies to the, the letter to the Colossians. And once again, if you, if you like what you're hearing, uh, please share it with your friends, like and subscribe. Give us good ratings on the different apps that you have. Uh, your support helps to make this happen and helps people to find us on these platforms. So when you like and subscribe, it helps uh, those that are out there looking to not only find us, but then to be able to share with their friends. So without further ado, we'll get started. And once again, welcome and thank you for joining us. Okay, so uh, Philippians, this, how do I say this? This is such a bright letter. It's filled with joy and goodness. It's almost like Paul is so giddy that he just he just can't contain himself. So sh should we talk about joy really quick? Yeah. Okay. Uh, he starts off by writing about how much uh, joy he has, and it's everywhere through the text. And what's ironic about this is he is in jail at the time. The, the, this is a one of those prison letters, and written in the the mid fifties probably. And it, like for example, just start in Philippians one three and four. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you always making requests with joy for your fellowship and the gospel from the first day until now and just all throughout it's joy 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 verse verse 7 of chapter 1 i have joy in my heart verse 18 i rejoice i love verse 8 mike yeah how greatly i long after you all in the bowels of jesus christ it's a love letter boy that just that's just beautiful description. It's so good. I, I once had a friend say to me that many of the scriptures are love letters to you from God. 
And this is what this is. I mean, yeah. we could go on and on, but joy and rejoicing in chapter 2, 17 and 18, that you may rejoice, 2, 28. Rejoice in the Lord, 3, 1. He's just, he's just so happy. 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says rejoice. By the way, when I read Philippians 4, 4, I thought of that hymn uh, that says rejoice. I don't even remember the name of the hymn. But anyway, it's a good hymn. And then verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. So, and what's ironic about this is he's so happy, and yet he's in such bad circumstance. Yep. Love it. Okay. Should we talk about other stuff? Should I geek out really you quick? You geek out. Okay, Mike. I'm going to geek out really quick. I got so. a couple things to say about application and how the book of Philippians teaches such a wonderful lesson, but let's geek out a little bit. Okay, so let's geek out. There's this idea in in textual analysis called catabasis. And catabasis is the opposite of anabasis. Catabasis is where you go down the staircase, and anabasis is where you go up the staircase. And one of my favorite versions of catabasis is, well, there's a couple, but one of them is Adam. Adam comes from the, the heavens and in, in different settings and different texts. He eventually becomes man, he becomes mortal, and then Eve is brought to him, and she comes from the heavens. So it's Adam and Eve, really. But Adam literally just means man. And through some experiences that they have, they leave the presence of the Lord. They leave Eden, and they come into this lone and dreary world and then suffer and go through some great trials. And even in Adam's name, and I'll geek out on this sometime when we do Genesis, but just even in his name, in the letters of his name, from the Aleph to the Mem to the Tau, it's this catabasis it's this going down and and also ascension but like i said enough of that let's do let's do um one more jonah in the book of jonah jonah goes from the presence of the lord down into the ship down into the sea down into the belly of the fish and then down and in, in what the author says in jonah into the depths of sheol the depths of hell and so that's jonah let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So the beginning we have Jesus, he's in the form of God, he's equal with him, but he becomes a servant, and in the likeness of men. And then verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So that's catabasis. All the way from the, the realm of heaven, Jesus, as God, became man. Descended and, below all things. Yeah, section 88, descended below all things. And then, and then anabasis, verse 9, wherefore God also, also hath highly exalted him. So now we're going up. And given him a name which is above every name. So Jesus has the, and by the way, that's a, that's a way of saying he's the greatest. He's the best. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. So we have going down this staircase and we have going up. And what I find fascinating about this is there's a lot of scholarship out there that this is the one of the earliest hymns in the Christian church. And I'm going to introduce a term that we'll use a lot as we get, especially in other texts. The word is Christology. And what Christology is, is this idea of 
what is Jesus? What is, who is he? And when, what powers does he have? And the early Christians, there were very many different uh, notions or ideas of who he was. And there was a matrix of ideas that different Christians had that related to Jesus. But there were those that had what was considered high Christology and those that had low Christology. So for example, high Christology view of Jesus was that he was God and that he overcame death and that he existed before the world was made. And low Christology, Christians that had a low Christology, as the scholars use it, looked at him as a man that God had favored, almost like a prophet. If you ever hear people say, oh, I love Jesus, and then they come out and say something like, he was a great prophet, but he wasn't literally the son of God, or he wasn't God. That would be considered a view from low Christology. Well, right here, and this is why I like this, right here in Philippians 2, one of the earliest texts ever written in, in, in scholarship, uh, uh, Philippians is considered authentic, and it's considered one of the first texts written. It's written before the Gospels, according to scholarship. My point is, right here, we have Jesus as a God. High Christology, coming to earth, becoming man. And so many early Christian fathers said this, and we've lost this over time in, Christ in Christianity. But so many early fathers said, God became man so that man could become like God. Theosis. So that's beautiful. That's really beautiful, Mike. Good stuff. Yep, I love it. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, I want to talk temple because we're in Philippians and it's in the text. But before I do, Bryce, um, what do you think? How, do, how would you respond to somebody that says, why does it even matter that Paul's talking about the temple? Why does it even, who cares? Like, so what? Um, I love this quotation from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a Christian writer back in the 1940s through the 60s. Um, he was at, he actually died the same day JFK was shot, so no one really noticed that C.S. Lewis passed away. Um, but man, he wrote some wonderful things about Christianity. And in one of his books called The Weight of Glory, he says the following, if our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and yet need to know. The truth which you do not know and which you need to know in the very nature of things must be hidden precisely in the doctrine you least like and least understand. It is just the same here as in science. The phenomenon which is troublesome, which doesn't fit in with the current scientific theories, is the phenomenon which compels reconsideration and thus leads to new knowledge. Science progresses because scientists, instead of running away from such troublesome phenomena or hushing them up, are constantly seeking them out. In the same way, there will be progress in Christianity, in Christian knowledge, only as long as we accept the challenge of the difficult or repellent doctrines. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have very, very simple truths, truths that even children can understand. But then the Lord gives us a higher university of truth that we call the temple. And it's written in the language of symbolism. And so sometimes we run away from that symbolism. We don't like it. We don't understand it. It scares us or it makes us nervous or it confuses us. But it's in that very essence that we can find some of the deepest and most wonderful truth. We gotta talk about temple as much as we possibly can because it's in the temple that the Lord reveals his greatest 
and most wonderful and prized truths. And so, yeah, sometimes we get, we're a little afraid of the temple and we're nervous and we don't understand all the symbolism. But Mike, I think it's wonderful in scripture to point out how often the temple was a part of Paul's life, how often he wrote about it. And sometimes we don't see him use the word text, but he's implying things that's referring to temple. And that ought to confirm our faith. That ought to say, look, Paul worshiped in the temple. And he found marvelous truths in the temple. So we ought to do the same thing. So, Mike, where do you find temple in Philippians? That's a good question. Uh, and so in my Greek classes, I'm learning lots of words. And, and the word lumbano comes up. And, and we see it in the text. And, and I just I start catching this stuff as I'm going through it. And I'm a student. I'm, I'm by no means an expert. So I sit before you as a student looking at this text, but I just can't get this out of my head. So we're going to be in chapter three and there's a little bit of, of hinting in here. There, there's words like verse two of chapter three, where it says, beware of dogs. And there's a lot of phrases about mystery going through some of this stuff, but it really, to me, starts popping right about verse 10. And I'm skipping a bunch of stuff because we're doing a podcast and we can't totally geek out, but start in verse 10. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, Paul writes, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended for Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press forward toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Now, I got to admit, from first reading, you read that. And first of all, I think the average reader uh, in a Latter-day Saint audience would read that and say, um, uh, what did he just say? Like I, <laughs> And I got to tell you, as, as a teacher, my first many years of reading Paul, I would read stuff like this and be like, I don't even know how to relate this, let alone what he, is he saying. And so, and let me just say this, I want to give... Uh, I want to tip my hat to the King James translators, and I want to just say, I think they're doing their best. Imagine you're a King James translator, and you read a temple text, and you have no clue what's going on. They're doing their best, and so I just want to be nice to them. But now I want to talk about what I think is going on here. And there's different ways to, to read these words. I understand that. And so I'm going to read a different translation. But first, let's talk about the temple. Okay, here we go. Fellowship. The word is koinonia, and one of the main re ways that word is used is it's the right hand as a sign or membership or fellowship in his sufferings. Now, koinonia can also mean a group of saints that are collectively in it together. Koinonia is a family that breaks bread together and goes through struggles. It's Nephi and his family struggling through the wilderness and they have fellowship in their sufferings. And to nerd out a little bit, yes, it's fellowship of the ring. The entire thing that, that the author of Fellowship of the Ring is trying to do, Tolkien's trying to show you, um, 
Christ-centered symbols in this story of these people from different backgrounds that have one mission, to do something good. And so Kononia is the right hand of fellowship, but then it really starts to click when you look at the end of verse 10. So I'm going to read verse 10 with a little bit of a spin on it. That I may know him, meaning Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the Kononia of his sufferings. With the right hand, I'm going to know his sufferings being made conformable and that word is sumorfizo, sumorfizo, and it's to render like. And that's the only place this is happening in the King James Version. So I'm rendering something like, symbolic, his suffering. Something like, with the right hand, his suffering. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend. And apprehend is that word lambano. It's kata lambano. And it literally means to take by the hand. To take by the right hand that for which I am also, once again, grasping Jesus by the right hand. So the image, it's a sacred image. But the image that I want to portray to you listeners is the image of uh, Peter. And he's in the water. And he's grabbing Jesus by the hand. And he's, Jesus is pulling him through. And if you think about it, we're in this, we're in the ocean. We're in the chaos. And Jesus is pulling us through to him. But from a temple perspective, this is uh, sacred stuff. We're being brought into, into uh, the realm of where Jesus is. And I'm going to put in the show notes a lot of Christian texts, uh, especially images, powerful images and paintings where we see this all through Christian history. So I can talk about art and I can talk about symbols and, and be true to all things that are good and sacred. But I want to continue because it, we're not done. Verse 13, he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. In other words, I haven't totally grasped it. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, so I'm giving up behind what's behind me, and I'm reaching forth unto those things which are before. So it's this notion of movement, we're leaving the things behind. And then verse 14, where he says, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I've been called and I'm going to the scopus, the mark. And the scopus is another word that doesn't appear anywhere else in the King James text. And it means a guardian or sentry that is concealed. And there's a lot of this in the literature, especially outside the Bible, that it's this matrix of ideas that the saints, the Kodashim, the holy ones, press forward through gates to God and that God is calling them. And so picture in your mind's eye, you listeners that have been to the temple, an idea of God calling you to him, taking you by the right hand, and you're passing the scopus, you're passing the sentry. In the words of Brigham Young, the angels who stand as sentinels, guarding the way to God. And so this is one way to read the text. Let me throw one more thought in there. Jesus has in his hands the marks he suffered in saving me. I have in my hands the marks and the scars that I have taken in his service. As the world beats us up because we love Christ, we, in essence, have wounds in our hands. And I love the idea of Jesus reaching out that hand 
and we put those two wounds together. My wounds in his service, his wounds in my service, and we come to a fellowship of his suffering. That's beautiful. We unify my wounds and his wounds, and that's how he grabs me and pulls me towards him. Yes, that's, that's amazing. Um, Bryce, one more thing, and then I'm gonna, we're going to have you take this away. I, I do want to read what's called the RSV version of this text, the Revised Standard Version, to see how translations are affected with words. So I'm just going to read 10 through uh, 15 in the RSV, and here it is. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that if possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brethren, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded. And if anything, you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. So I like that translation. Uh, clearly, there's no understanding of what I've been talking about. But the overall message is keep going, don't stop, and be mature about this. And so I think the rendering or the reading of the RSV is good. I also like looking at the words. And to me, Catalambano, all the words that we've talked about, we're, we're grasping Jesus. We're symbolically coming into his presence. And so I like it. I want to also make a plug for what Bryce said. I think when we talk about the temple in ways that are appropriate, we teach our children. And I want to do better as a dad to teach my kids to talk about the temple in appropriate ways so that they know that it's not something that's foreign, but that this is resting in first century Christianity and that Joseph Smith is what we say he is, that he is God's representative. How else could a young man out in the middle of the sticks Give us this stuff. of truth. Yeah, I just want to testify of that. Like in my bones, I feel like Joseph's just getting blasted in the world. And I want, to, I want one voice to stand up and say, Joseph Smith is legit. Yeah. I love that Elder Bednar said, it's as dangerous to not talk about the temple as it is to talk inappropriately about the temple. Sometimes we think, well, I can't say anything about the temple. Therefore, we don't. And yet our enemies do. Yeah, we're getting blasted. And so I love the fact that Elder Bednar said, let's talk about the temple. Let's make it a very real part of our lives and how we come unto Christ because uh, it is a major part of our religion. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thank you. Let me throw in just kind of uh, an insight, an application for how Philippians might, you know, make a difference in our daily lives. I'd like to take everyone back to Acts chapter 16. Um, Acts chapter 16, verse 7 after they were come to Mysia, they essayed, which means they wanted, they wanted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit suffered them not. And they passed by Mysia and came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed, saying, Come over here, come to Macedonia and help us. So Paul goes to Macedonia, and eventually the chief city in Macedonia, verse 12, and from thence to Philippi. In other words, Paul didn't want to go to Philippi. He wanted to go to Bithynia. 
And the Lord said, no. No, Paul, I need you to come to Bithynia. And as you read in that letter, Paul loved the Philippians, and they loved him, and he had such a marvelous time there. I love back in chapter 1 where he, sa he says, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. These Philippian saints loved Paul, and Paul loved them. And Philippi, Philippi was perhaps one of the very best places Paul went to. And so, how many times in our lives do we want to go to Bithynia? And we have every intention of going to Bithynia, and the Lord says, No, I have another plan for you. And he sends us to Philippi, only to discover it was the best thing in the world for us. <laughs> And we ought to trust him. The next time you're on your way to Bithynia and the Lord says, no, I'm going to change your plans. I want you to remember the Philippian saints. I want you to remember how much Paul loved the Philippians. When I was first hired to teach religion by the church, I was sent down to Thatcher, Arizona, a little small town in the outskirts of Arizona towards the New Mexico border. My wife and I, were we rented a car and we drove from Phoenix out to Thatcher. I was born and raised in the Salt Lake Valley. I'm a big city boy. As we pulled into Thatcher, neither of us were speaking to each other, but we were holding hands and we both started to clench very tightly our hands. And we cried a little bit. <laughs> really, Lord? This is where you're sending us? We'd been told that we couldn't request a transfer for five years, and so we were both thinking, five years? Five years? How are we going to do five years in this place? you got to have an air conditioner, don't you? Is <laughs> yeah. it hot there? It's hot. Okay. And we wept going into Thatcher. Now, eight years later, the Lord moved us again. And, oh, man, did we weep. We loved Thatcher. We loved the people, still do. Loved it. It was my Philippi. It was a place I had not planned on going. It is not where I planned on starting my career. But oh my goodness, was it one of the best things for me. And I have learned that we all have Bithynias and Philippis. We all have places where we thought our life would go, things we thought we would do, and then the Lord steps in and says, but I have another plan for you, and trust me because you're going to like it better. And we often go kicking and screaming to Philippi, looking back at Bithynia saying, but Lord, but Lord, until we realize how wonderful we love Philippi. Paul loves these Philippian saints. And so you find that in his writings. Go back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, Brethren, the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. I like that. Now he's talking about going to prison. He went to prison and he was able to actually preach the gospel in prison. But it's wonderful that the Lord can turn all of our experience. Trust him when he sends you to Philippi. It's like Joseph of Egypt where he says to his brothers... God sent me yeah. here. Yeah. But he certainly didn't think that going into Egypt. He was like, I'm in prison. This but is lame. But looking back, he said, man, did the Lord have his hand in, in my life. Verse 19, I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer 
and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's just that idea that if we trust the Lord and go to Philippi, it will be better than anything we planned on doing on our own. Um, end of verse 20, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether in my life or, in my, or by death. And I just, there's such a beautiful thing of trusting the Lord when he calls you away from Bithynia and sends you to Philippi. That in the end, when we look back, we say that right there, that experience, that Philippi experience was one of the very best things the Lord could have done in my life. That's why I love the book of Philippians, just because it's such a happy, joyful, I love you, you love me, fellowship. And it's something that he didn't really want to do. He wanted to go to Bithynia yeah. and ended up having the most marvelous experience in Philippi. And so may we trust the Lord a little bit more when the whisperings of his spirit pull us away from our Bithynias and send us to Philippi's. Because someday I guarantee you're going to look back and say, man, I would have missed out. That was the best thing that could have happened to me. I like that. We got to throw some, we got to pay homage to the article of faith 13. We do. So verse eight, chapter four. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatever's honest, whatsoever things are just, whatever's pure, whatsoever is lovely, good report, if it be virtuous, or if there's anything of any praise, think on these things. You know, uh, you I think, can, yeah. You can certainly see that Paul meant a lot to Joseph Smith. His words resonated inside of Joseph Smith's soul and he thought and and said them quoted them quite often yeah I, I think that's a, that's a motivation for why we do this why are we doing this podcast you listeners out there you're you're seeking you're looking and I just that's what I think Christianity is we just want to do goodness we want to spread it we want to it, it sounds a little cheesy but we want to eat goodness we just want light so I, I just, to me, this is just Paul, well-rounded, in the middle of the pit, and he's not whining, and he's just full of light. I can imagine going to visit this man in this prison situation, and coming to visit him, and he's asking me, Mike, tell me how you're doing. And I'm like, no, Paul, tell me how you're doing. He's like, I don't want to talk about me. Let's talk about something happy. Yeah. Anyway, so good stuff. Good stuff. Let me throw one more thing in, Mike. I, I don't want to be misunderstood. I, I really want to be helpful to people, and I... If there's anyone out there listening to this that's maybe thinking they are ready to give up on life, uh, there's a beautiful little thought at the end of chapter 1 in Philippians. Paul's life has been tough. He has been beaten up. You know, he's been whipped. He's been stoned. He spent many days in the ocean. He spent days in prison. And I think like Paul, sometimes we get to the point where I just want to give up on life. Um, in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, I am in straits betwixt two. I'm struggling with two thoughts. Number one, I desire to depart and to be with Christ. Man, I'm ready to give up on this life. I'm ready to just leave for a better life to come. I think things would be better if I just left. And so Paul says, I'm ready to depart and be with Christ Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. I'd love to just leave, but I'm going to stay for you.
you need me. You will be happier if I stay. Having this confidence, I know I shall abide and continue with you for your furtherance and joy. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus for me. Those of you who are ready to give up on life, and I can't even imagine some of the challenges you're facing, maybe someone in your life is worth living for, for them. Maybe we ought to say to ourselves, look, I'm, my life is challenging, but I'm going to stay for you. I like that. Because, I, because you will be better off if I stay. You will be happier. I may not be, but you will be happier if I stay. So I choose to stay for you. Your happiness now becomes a part of my happiness. I just, anyone who's struggling with maybe giving up on life, look around and I bet you anything, there's someone in your life who will be much happier if you stay. Hold on. In spite of all the challenges that we face, hold on for them. And let their happiness be a part of the reason you stay. I like that. That's a really good Christian message yeah. about uh, life and hope. And once again, to reiterate, and I know we've said this, but he doesn't know this could be in his mind. He's thinking, maybe I'm not going to make it. And he's just, he's just once again being positive. Great okay. book, Philippians. Thank you, Paul, for writing it. Yeah, good stuff, positive. Okay, well, uh, Colossians. So we're doing both today. Okay, well, uh, Colossians, and I think I think you're going to share that picture. We'll probably put that in the show notes. Uh, we'll find a way to make that accessible. But Colossians talks a lot about uh, Jesus, different ways to see to see Jesus, and. Uh, we think, that, and there's a lot of similarities between Colossians and Ephesians. We think that if, if, if this is Deutero-Pauline, meaning not genuinely Pauline, that whoever wrote it was the same person who wrote Ephesians. And so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that. And when it comes to the purpose of writing, I, I guess this is just kind of how my mind works, Bryce. When I come to a text, I read it, and then I go, okay, what are the parts that nobody gets? And then I'm like, okay, now I'm going to spend 19 hours reading about that thing so that I know what's going on. That's just how my brain works because I just it's like a puzzle. And so I'm going to talk about the heresy. And, and however you say the name of the city, potato, potato, Colossae, Colossia, I don't know. I butcher pronunciations. But we're going to talk about that heresy because Paul does. Paul talks about it, but then he's just dropping hints. We don't know what he's saying, but we're going to look at that. But there's a really powerful passage in here about Jesus, and we'll read that, and that's in the first chapter. And then what else are we going to talk about? Uh, we're going to talk about his encouraging them to be on guard. We'll talk a little bit, like I said, about the heresy. And I'm going to do what I call a, like a five or a ten minute sketch of Gnosticism because I think Paul's addressing that. But and I know you're going to you're going to make this apply, you're, Bryce. You're going to read this and you're going to say, "Here's what we can do with Colossians. Here's what is applicable." So should I just go? Go. Okay. We'll just I'll just get into it. I love when Mike geeks out. So. I mean, we're going to geek out. Okay. So here we go. 
First, we got to read uh, chapter 1, 15. So this is what he says. Talking about Jesus, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence, but it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in the earth or things in heaven. This is powerful stuff. This probably was an early Christian hymn, according to most scholars. And I can't read those verses, Bryce, and not think about the beginning of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And in scholarship, that, that first chunk of John, first 20 verses or so, is considered to be an early Christian hymn. This was who Jesus was. And we could write a book on Logos. Well, maybe I couldn't, but one day, one day. Uh, but there are books on Logos, this idea of the manifestation of what is in God's heart. It's the word. This podcast, it's the words, the word. I think you have a thing called things of my soul. Like this is the words that are in us. And to Paul, Jesus is, you want to know what father's like? You want to know what heavenly father's like? You look at Jesus. But then it's, it's big picture stuff and it's so hard with words to describe this. But Bryce, what I think Paul's saying here is that Jesus encapsulates everything. This is section eight. I think it's 88, right? The light that permeates all things. I think it's like verse 13 or it, it's in there uh, where he's going to bring everything back to him. Let me interject something. Yeah. I just yeah. love this quotation from Joseph Smith. He said, Oh Lord God, deliver us in thy due time from the little narrow prison, almost as it were total darkness of pen paper, and ink, and a crooked, broken, scattered, and imperfect language. That's my brain. He says, I can't say it the way my language limits it. He just wishes he could break out of the language and the, the words and let just, his spirit just soar. And I did, that's what you're saying, Mike. And I just, Joseph felt that way. I that's such a cool quote. Where is that? That's in the personal writings of Joseph Smith. It was a letter to W.W. Phelps of November 27th, oh, 1832. I love it. I, can I just say that's how I feel? Like, I don't, I'm not saying it, but I'm trying to say it. So, so basically, the way I look at this is Jesus is everything. And he is wants to bring everything back. And in early Christian writings, there's this idea of the noose. And it's spelled N-O-U-S if you want to Google it. And by the way, listeners, if you Google noose, you're going to spend a long time. And it's fun. And, and just make sure that it's quiet because you can't have distraction. But it's this idea of this noose or this logos from the Greek-speaking mind or the Greek of Paul's day that everything is encapsulated in this light and this intensity. And it's all emanating from Jesus. And in Paul's view, he's like, God's going to bring it all back. Now we have agency in the whole bit, and I'm not going to get into that, but it's the fullness and verse 20, he's going to reconcile everything to himself, reconcile, reconcilio to sit again with, what does this mean to me? It's pre-earth. We sat with him and Christ is going to reconcile. And I just love it. So 
I'm geeking out and we could do a whole podcast on those verses or the him and John and we're not going to, but it's good stuff. So we have to do that. Okay. I'm going to geek out on the, on the heresy and there's a heresy going on and it's kind of tough, but here we go. Chapter two. So here we go. Verse eight, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. And the tradition is where we get that word um, philosophy, and it means to pass stuff down uh, by men. And I don't think passing stuff down by men is bad, but I think if it is false tradition, we got to be careful. And so that's happening. Uh, and then he says in verse eight, he says, "Be on guard." Uh, that that beware. The word in, in the Greek is to be on guard, so that no one swears you by philosophy, or no one snares you. Excuse me by philosophy and empty deceit. So he's just challenging them to be so careful. And these statements uh, from Paul, they're going to form a matrix of ideas that are associated with many of the thoughts swirling around in Jewish and Christian circles in the first centuries. And I'm going to talk about them briefly. We could probably do a series of podcasts on what's happening this first century. And and it's a lot, and it's a lot to unpack. So in a really simple way, uh, a scholar, John Hall, he taught at BYU for a while, taught classics. He taught, he calls this fractionalization. Fractionalization. What that is, is Jesus is going around and he's teaching and he's doing all these things. And there's all these Christians scattered all over around the Roman Empire. And there wasn't one consistent monolithic teaching of Jesus. There was fractions, all kinds of views about who he was. And there were multiple Christianities. The scholar Bart Ehrman wrote a book called Lost Christianities. And in this book, like I said, we could do multiple podcasts about this, but there were multiple views of who Jesus was. And they weren't all accurate, but I really think that they were trying their best. In the, in the most cases, they were doing their best. And Paul, or the author of Colossians, seems to be warning about some of these ideas that are wrong, that are causing damage. But we really don't know what they are. Go to 16, chapter 2, 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath, which are shadows of things to come. Verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And so he's challenging uh, their views. Now, it doesn't really say this in the King James, but this is what it says. Well, we're going to do this. So he's challenging in verse 18 about the elements of the universe. And this is, and that's, it doesn't translate, but what he's saying in, in, in the Greek is this, this idea that there are angels that are over the universes that are the universe that are associated with stars. And sometimes the stars are angels. And sometimes they stand there as guardians. And a lot, as I read this in the Greek, there's a lot of ideas that are Gnostic that are in here. And Gnosticism gets blasted in scholarship, especially in what I call Orthodox Christian scholarship or evangelical scholarship. And I want to stand in it. And I'm going to talk about this for a minute. And, and I'm going to be in a weird place, Bryce. I'm going to both Look at Gnosticism as it stands in maybe a negative light, but also I'm going to defend Gnosticism and say, no, there's some things that they're doing that are good. And so um, we're not going to settle it right now, but I think what's going on is Paul is attacking some of these ideas. 
so in scholarship, some people think that he's attacking some things regarding uh, Jewish ideas, and there's some there's some uh, evidence there that he may be. And I'll put this in the show notes. This goes way deeper than our podcast. So for you listeners that want to know more, go to the show notes, and we'll put some stuff and we'll put links out there. And this won't be the only time we talk about it, but here we go. We'll give it a shot. So here's my quick take on Gnosticism really quick. First of all, what is Gnosticism? It's where we get the word no. Like, have you ever wondered why the word no starts with a K? I remember when I was a kid going, why is there a K and no? That's just so stupid. And so that comes from the word Gnostic, which starts with a G. And Gnostic, to know, it means to know something. And what's going on, and this is, to me, fascinating in biblical scholarship and understanding how we got the Bible. Uh, early Christians... There were a bunch of them that were walking around saying, hey, Bryce, we're in the know. We know stuff that you don't know. And we're insiders. And what was the stuff they knew? They went around saying, well, Jesus taught stuff during the 40-day ministry after his death that you don't know. And we know. And so some Christians were like, well, what do you know? Well, they'd say, well, do I trust you? And so on and on they go. And they would say things. We have the tradition that's not written down. We have sacred teachings of Jesus. And what I find fascinating is, however you view the Bible, if you view the Bible as this totally perfect book that's everything in it that needs to be in it, my contention would be, well, then where's the goods that Jesus gave him after he was resurrected? We don't have that stuff. So, so here's my quick take uh, on Gnosticism. So that's kind of their, their view. We got the goods, you don't, and you're saved through knowledge, they would always say. And there are multiple different strands of Gnosticism. Uh, a bunch of them, but three main ones, but they all have some, you know, some similar commonalities. So here, I'm going to run through some commonalities really quick. We'll put them in the show notes. Then there were ascetics. There were Gnostics who were like, I'm holy and I know stuff because I don't do things that normal people do. Maybe I don't eat certain foods or I'm really good at fasting. And then there were antinomians and antinomians is just a fancy way for saying that there were Gnostics who were like, well, since Jesus is going to save us, we don't really need to do any rules. We can kind of do what we want. And they're going to be railed on in Revelation. John's going to ra rail on these guys. Those are the three main branches, and we could talk a lot about that. Let me defend them a little bit and talk about some things that, as a Latter-day Saint audience, you may have heard this stuff. Um, I'm going to go through a bunch of things that they taught that are kind of cool. Um, they taught the 40-day tradition. We've talked about that. They're all into temples and ascension. They believe that we can ascend back to be with God. They taught a lot about overcoming the flesh. There's a ton of their stuff where they talk about pre-mortal life. If you read Gnostic texts, uh, pre-mortal life is a big theme. Multiple heavens, the importance of coming back into God's presence. They teach that Adam and Eve had the gospel preached to them, and Adam and Eve knew Jesus. They teach about ritual teaching as part of an inner circle of believers, sacred marriage, that marriage was not just for this life, that it went into the what they called beyond the veil. And that Adam and other leaders of the, of the early Christian church, and that's what they call them, the early Christians, and they were referring to Adam and the patriarchs in the Old Testament, that they had premortal roles assigned to them and given to them by God. And then finally, many of the Gnostic texts affirm that an apostasy was imminent, that the, the church would go into the wilderness, as it were. And a lot of these texts were discovered in Egypt, and they're called the Nag Hammadi Library. And... These teachings, in my opinion, a lot of them are true, like section 91, some of them aren't, but we think what's going on in Colossians is a branch of these Gnostics are teaching some things 
that are taking them away from Jesus. And so in a very simple way, Paul's saying, we've got to keep our focus on Christ. But at the end of the day, this was like five minutes of your life. We don't know if he's even addressing them. But in most scholarship, we think that's what's going on. And there's this tension, Bryce, in the early church of establishing orthodoxy. And we don't even have a Bible if it weren't for the Gnostics. There was a Gnostic by the name of Marcion. And basically, Bryce, he took the Old Testament and he says, I don't like that stuff. That God's harsh. We're going to chuck it. And then he took a lot of the writings in the New Testament and says, I don't like those. And he took a few texts and he said, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And these followers were called Marcionites. And these Marcionites, at one point, there were more of them than there were Orthodox Christians. And it was through these tensions and these struggles that the early Christians decided, well, if Marcion has a canon of texts, we need to have a canon. And so today, our Bibles that are sitting in our laps are the result of those arguments and those debates over what does it mean to have something be canon law and what is canonicity and how do we decide. And one day we'll do a podcast on geeking out on how we got the Bible, but this is a big picture view of the struggles that are going on. Paul's trying to put it down and it's really kind of cloudy. We really don't know who he's picking on, but that's who we think. We think he's picking on a group of Gnostics that have kind of gone off the rails. I hope I'm describing this okay. So let me make that applicable, Mike. Yeah, That's a beautiful <laughs> description of what Paul's going through. Paul is dealing with apostates who are leaving the church over issues of doctrine. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happening in the church today. Every one of us knows someone who has walked away from the church because of a doctrinal issue or disagreements with a doctrinal issue. And so this text really does teach a big picture idea that... When it comes to disputes about doctrine, let's focus on Christ. Let's rediscover who he is. If you will keep your allegiance to the Savior, then you tied to him. And all of these things seem to be, be less important. And so Paul comes back and says, let's talk about Christ. And I love what he does here. He basically says, let's see Jesus in three or four different aspects. Mm -hmm. One aspect, let's see him as Redeemer. So you, he talks about, like, ver, chapter 1, verse 12, he, will made, he made us meet. 13, delivered us from the power of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. 14, redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins. 20, reconcile all things unto himself. 22, present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. In other words, Jesus is going to redeem you. Let's not get caught up in these doctrinal issues as much as we turn to the Redeemer. And then he goes back and presents Jesus as creator. Verse 16 of chapter 1. By him were all things created. 17. He is before all things. By him all things consist. So not only is he the one that's going to redeem us, but he's creator and he's given us life. And we, ought to owe, we, we owe him this debt of gratitude for all that he has offered us. Verse 18, he's the head of the church. He's the head of the body. Verse 19, oh, I wish we had more time. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. There's a wonderful line in the book of Abraham where he's talking about stars and he's comparing stars to spirits and human beings. And one star is greater than them all. And Jesus is saying, he uses a phrase, 
I am smarter than they all. I don't fully completely understand the English language, but he didn't say them. I'm smarter than them. I'm smarter than they. I think that subtle twist of language means not only is Jesus smarter than each of us, he is smarter than all of us put together. Combined. Which Neil A. Maxwell testified to as his very first address as an apostle. That he is smarter than the composite of all of us. That blows my mind. When Jesus says he is smarter than they all, it's a humble way of saying, do you understand who he is? I'm not smarter than, Jesus isn't smarter than each of us. He's smarter than all of us. And here we talk about doctrinal issues. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, turn to him. And Paul is saying, turn to him. So after portraying Christ as all of these things, creator, redeemer, head, composite of everything that's good, what then should we do? Notice the hint here about coming together. Verse 23, continue in the faith, grounded and settled. I like that. Be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. We get caught up in doctrine and we miss the hope of the gospel. Jesus is the center of it all. Don't let these heresies, don't let these false ideas, don't let these contentions over doctrine pull you away from him. Be grounded and settled and be not moved. If you go to chapter 2, verse 2, knit together in love knit together. Verse 7, rooted, built up, established in the faith. And I think Colossians is so applicable to our day because so many people are fracturing. They are not rooted. They are not established. They are not grounded and settled they're being moved away from the hope of the gospel. It seems like the human condition. It does. We, we naturally tend to fractionalization, don't yeah. we? And it, what did Joseph say was happening in his day? Fractured religion. And he was looking for unity. Yeah. Even if, It's not just ground. religion. It's politics. It's, it's everything. everything. Yeah. We fight. We get along. Or we, we disagree. And I love what Paul is doing here. And he's pleading for all of us. Wherever your arguments or your disagreements or your troubles might be, come to Jesus. Discover his greatness. Remember who he is and what he is and what he's done. He is the key. Not the brethren. Those are wonderful. Not the doctrines. Those are wonderful. Not how did Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon. Not stones and putting heads in hats. It's Jesus. It's finding Christ and discovering who he is and loving him. That will make us grounded and settled and rooted and established and we won't move away. I love those words. I love them. But they, you take Jesus out of that and those words go away. No matter what. It's Jesus that makes us grounded and rooted and settled. And so Paul is pleading, as I think the Savior is pleading today, that we not be fractured in our disagreements over doctrine and history 
and human beings, but that we find Christ and we discover who he really is and we stand in awe. Neil A. Maxwell in that same talk said, any attempt we make to see where we stand against Christ reminds us that we don't stand, we kneel. And that's what we need today in light of the heresies that we face. We need to be in awe of the Creator, the Redeemer, the Head. And when we come back to Christ, we find grounding and unity. Let's talk about Christ. Let's preach of Christ. Let's prophesy of Christ. Let's let Jesus be the center of everything that we do. And then we're not fractured. We're unified, knit together in love because he is love. And so thank you, Paul, for the reminder that Jesus is the cornerstone of everything. And let's not be fractured by doctrine, by philosophy, by history, by human beings. Let's find the Savior. That's awesome. I think with that, we'll close it out. And uh, I want to thank you for listening, everyone out there. Thanks for listening. And uh, we just... Uh, Hope that you. Okay, so that's our show. We uh, want to say thanks for listening, and hopefully, we'll see you next week when we cover First and Second Thessalonians. And as always, please like, subscribe, share, etc. And let's spread goodness in the world. Thanks for joining us.